we're doing development on Pillars of Creation now, so yep. almost all of the drafts are in, and I should really be working on that also. And I have, I have not turned my attention that way, mostly because everyone wasn't turned in yet. Y- yep. Yeah. yeah. And you volunteered to do the fun part of compiling all the drafts. So Yes. I, I have compiled the drafts for the chapters that we have. Which is great, because uh, I hate doing that. <laughs> I think it's... Uh, yeah, I, I enjoy that kind of thing. Great. Great. Yeah, I have, on more than one occasion, forgotten to copy someone's section over and thought that I had. Oops. And then it got to a point and people were like, oh, why'd you cut my whole section? And I was like, I fucking didn't. I try never to do that. And then they were like, it's not in there. And I was like, what? (laughs) And in at least one instance that was in like proofing. And I was like, I am so sorry, but this whole like, like 5,000 more words have to go into the book. Oops. I I think I've been going, I've both been taking the sections and also comparing that back to the original um, outline. So I think, I think we'll be good on that front. Yeah. It's one of those things that if I'm solo, sometimes I wind up slyly sliding that task to someone else. (laughs) I'm just like, could someone please do this? The other thing was putting things in alphabetical order, but I did discover that Word will do that for you. Cool. If you didn't know that. Because all yeah. our charms need to be in alphabetical order. <laughs> It'll do it by heading. That yes. I will talk to you when I get to that part. Yeah, you can do it by heading. And also, like, if you need to order a list of things not by heading, you can basically highlight a section and be like, sort by the by paragraph. That's pretty sweet. That. Yep. And ever since I learned that, it was just like, oh, okay, I don't have to bother people about alphabetizing stuff anymore. And then I've just started also telling authors that, like, Word will do that for you. <laughs> As much crap as we give Office, Mm -hmm. it has some really neat tools in it. Well, that sounds like a cold open. Welcome to Bonus Experience. Uh, this is a podcast with a deeper look at the play experience and the finer details of running and writing games. And we are two queer people speaking with authority about games. I'm mad about it. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> Excellent. I have, again, in the studi- studio studio with me, friend in real life and friend of the show, Jazz. Hi. Introduce yourself. Tell our audience who you are. I mean, they know who you are, but tell them anyway. Hi, uh, I'm Chaz. Uh, he, they pronouns. I am a game writer and developer and podcaster of many podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they they mostly know who who I am. They they, yeah. they, they mostly listen to uh, systematic understanding of everything, and uh, probably also uh, follow Jira. Probably a bunch of people out there who are follow Jira yep. fans. Which, if you aren't haven't already listened to the story told's Exalted Third Edition. Dragon Blooded Actual Play, The Fall of Giara, you should. It's very well done. And I'm in it for like, as a guest character for like two or three episodes. I have a cameo in a handful of episodes towards the end. So not only do you have to listen to the, I'm not, it's not at the beginning. You're going to have to listen to the whole thing for my guest appearance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most of the guest appearances are, are like in Act 3. Because I, I got more connected to other exalted people over the course of making that in the two and a half years or, or whatever that it was supposed that it ended up being 
after my nice plans 12 session game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so f- 56 episodes later. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, there, it's not just me. There's a whole bunch of exalted staff people who appear as guest voices, including Ray and myself. Super. So we are hanging out today to talk about a topic of your choice, Chaz. And the topic we decided that would be cool for us to sit down and talk about today are games without randomization. Yeah. I didn't want I, I know I wrote diceless on the name of our thing, but that's because I didn't want to write out I have a limited number of characters for the session title and it would be like games without randomization and then have it get cut off halfway. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Uh, so I actually did not want to call this diceless because like through the breach is technically a diceless game because it uses card deck, but it's not a game without randomization. And I think it's important to clarify the distinct difference between the two. Definitely. Yeah. So we're talking about like belonging outside belonging games or games that use firebrands as the the framework for it. So. Yeah. Why don't you lead this off with talking about generally what we mean when we're talking about this sort of thing and maybe some of your favorites? Sure. So this is kind of a topic I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially after playing The the Fall of Magic, and I'll circle back to that. But traditional role-playing games always have some kind of randomization element to determine success or failure. And that's kind of the cool, innovative thing that they bring to storytelling as a model. And so I think it, it, it's, I don't want to say only recently, because I know there are uh, older games that also don't do randomization, like Amber Diceless. But I think there are more games today where they said, you know what, the interesting part is not a, a random success or failure, but it is the shared narrative. So one of the directions that non-trad games, uh, using a, a very fuzzy definition, have gone is to remove the randomization element so that it is either purely storytelling or a, a matter of choice. And there's a couple of different ways that that can play out depending on what the game mechanisms are. But uh, a couple of favorites are Fall of Magic, like I mentioned before, Wander Home, which is a belonging outside belonging game. If I had to pick some favorites, I'd say those two because I have not had the chance to play Firebrands yet. And up front, I'll just caveat that Firebrands is not entirely without randomization, but mm-hmm. the randomization is a mini game element and not a success failure element. So oh, okay. many of the mini games do not have randomization. A handful of them do, where you want to have some kind of outside measure as the play goes back and forth to ensure tension. Okay. But we can we can kind of dive in as we, we get to some specific examples. So you keep bringing up Fall of Magic, which I, I'm totally unfamiliar with. Like, I, uh, I know Belonging Outside Belonging. I have not read Wander Home specifically, but I have read Sleepaway, which is also a Belonging Outside Belonging game, so I'll probably talk about that later. And by Possum Creek as well, so I suspect that some of its functions are very similar. They're telling two very different stories, but I suspect the basic functions are pretty similar. And I'm also familiar with Firebrands through other people's hacks of it. <laughs> but um, Fall of Magic, I have, I'm not familiar with at all. So please tell me more about it. So the Fall of Magic is a role-playing game where the form factor is a printed canvas scroll. Okay. 
doing something cool already. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, and, like, the art and style is, like, an old fantasy novel, like, line map that shows, like, your char- the character journey with illustration of the nodes of the journey. And the concept of the game is that magic is dying, mm-hmm. and you are traveling with the Magus to, pl- to the place where magic was born because of that. Okay. And... Uh, along the way, you will visit all of these different places, and there's kind of a branching tree at, at a number of places where you can go a, a couple different paths. But the core of the way the game works is that it's all just storytelling prompts, mm-hmm. where, uh, for example, one of the places you can go is the, the Stormguard Mountains. Okay. And when you arrive at the Stormguard Mountains, there's a storytelling prompt that is the coming storm. Mm-hmm. And you have to tell a little bit of the story about the coming storm in whatever way you want to interpret that okay. when you move to the Stormguard Mountains. Interesting. Then, in turn, each player picks one of the other storytelling prompts for the location. Mm-hmm. For, so for the Stormguard Mountains, those are Scouting Ahead, okay. Taking Shelter, All right. Storm King Pass, and the Outpost are, are the, the kind of sub-locations. And then the story prompts are, for taking shelter, you tell a tale from your homeland. For Storm King Pass, you talk about the worsening weather. And for the outpost, the the story prompt is, by the order of the queen. Okay. And that ties into the next location, which is Castle Stormguard. And the first prompt there is, the hospitality of the Storm Queen. Okay. And so... Uh, these locations have uh, storytelling prompts that kind of set a theme mm-hmm. and suggest a story, but don't tell you what that story is, uh, and you get to fill that in. And some of those are reflective, like uh, a story from your homeland is about your own character, so you mm-hmm. do further character development, because character creation in this game is you pick a name, uh, and mm-hmm. they give a list of example names, and then choose a title, uh, and they give, like, 10 titles to pick from. Okay. And that's it. You've made your character. So when I was playing, I was Azure, a knight of Stormguard, and I didn't know what that meant going into the game. But in telling the story, that character got developed Mm -hmm. uh, and built connections with the other characters. Because when you set a scene, when you're telling that story, you bring your own character to the scene and any of the other characters along the journey. Now, this map is pretty big. The, the scroll is, um, I don't know, four feet long? Uh, no, it's longer than that. I'm holding a scroll in front of my microphone, so I'm sure that's great audio. I mean, I heard it uh, gently unfurling, which <laughs> pleasant ASMR for our listeners. It, it is a, a five-foot scroll. Okay. Uh, half of it is double-sided. Because there is a possibility that you will have to travel underground instead of across the sea. And then you flip to the reverse side of the scroll. All right, Elden Ring, chill out. Yep, it's pretty (laughs) sweet. And there's like 30 travel nodes along here. So this is is not even meant to be a short game. It's meant to, to, to support like a campaign and you like unroll the scroll to where you left off last time. Oh, wow. You know, that's really something because a lot of storytelling games are meant for short-term play. I find that really interesting. Like, yeah. uh, or if, like, if not, you tell one story and then you're done, which I would like to point out is not a criticism. That's not, I don't 
think there's anything wrong with that or bad, and that's not a critique. It's just that the games are designed that way to tell a story and then you're done. Or that if when you do tell a story, sometimes it might take place over a couple sessions, but it's not really a like, play this game for the next year type <laughs> <laughs> type commitment, right? right? And I sometimes certainly suffer from a little bit of the played exalted forever brain rot where it's just like, what do you mean this is a game I have to I can only play in four sessions and I'm not going to play for the next five years? What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I think it would be hard to, to make it a five year game. Probably. It's it's very hard to make any game a five-year game. Let's be honest with ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> we we ended up playing the entire campaign in a 13-hour uh, span, mm -hmm. nonstop. That's a long time. To, I haven't done that shit since I was, like, a teenager. <laughs> uh, okay, I wouldn't say nonstop. We did okay. take breaks for meals. Okay, that's fair. But we started at noon and ended at one in the morning, and like we're all bawling at the end of it because of the like the just the the emotional story beats that that had come up along the way, and it was all just from these little prompts and then adding little pieces of ideas and like every traveling node that we went to, we added not just to the story of what was happening there, but to the backstory, like how our characters were connected to each other and connected to the place. And just the combination of the art and the prompts created this really cohesive story. Mm -hmm. And then because of the path we took, one of the last places we visited was almost a mirror of the first place that we visited. And so we got to revisit some of the story beats from the beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. And just no randomization, no do we succeed or not, just using the prompts and figuring out how our characters developed and how the journey went created one of the most uh, amazing, cohesive narrative experiences that I've had at a role-playing game. So how does Fall of Magic do that mechanically? Like, when you talk about storytelling game mechanics, you're really talking about how those games facilitate the conversation and point players in the direction that the game wants you to go. So how does Fall of Magic direct you through the map and put you on this journey and use whatever prompts it has to tell that sort of compelling story? There's a couple of things that I think it does. One is it has really good prompts. And I think one of the common things you'll see in a game that, that doesn't use randomization is that whatever the prompts or questions are have to hit that right balance between evocative and open-ended. Yes, I agree. I definitely think these types of games live or die by their, the quality of their prompts. <laughs> and so I think Fall of Magic does a really good job with that. Second is the turn-taking mechanic. It is not just open-ended, hey, you hit a prompt and everybody does the prompt together. Okay. Every time you travel to a new location, there is a high-level location prompt. And then in turn, each player at the table has to take one of the prompts there. And so within that location, you only have four or five prompts, okay. which means somehow you need to, to tie that to the story. And when, when you, and, and they are open ended. So for example, at Raven Hall, which is the first location, there is the location of the bridge or like the sublocation of the bridge. And the prompt is your face in the river. And when we went there, we, we didn't know what we were doing yet, really, because this was like the first thing in the game. Mm -hmm. And one of the characters looked down, uh, said, uh, he looked down at the river 
and remembered a time looking at another river where it was flowing in blood, and he looked at his hands, which were bloody, and then kind of flashed back to the present where he was standing on the bridge to Ravenhall to go meet the Magus. Mm -hmm. And so that prompt didn't mean a lot at that time, but then we connected it to things that we had done before, or things that we did later, kind of revisited it, because we had the ruins of Crow Hall towards the end of the game, uh, which kind of mirrors Ravenhall, and there is, again, the bridge, and so the same character picked the prompt for that, mm -hmm. which was, who do you trust? And we had learned over the course of the game that, like, his character had murdered my character's mother as, like, a lead-up to this terrible battle that was one of the defining events of the, le the recent decades that we came up with over the course of things. Mm -hmm. And his character decided to trust my character and say, yes, that was what was happened. And, like, not ask for forgiveness, but, but like, come, come clean mm -hmm. and expected that I was just going to kill him right then and there. Um, and, like, this game doesn't have a death mechanic, but just the, the prompts over the course of the game built up this story. And by having the prompts that point at each other, that, that build the story, I guess this comes back to building the prompts, but you, you because you have to do this turn-taking and you have to take the prompts, it, by necessity, builds up the story. Another thing that it does is some of the prompts, instead of having a storytelling prompt, have a trait Okay. And when you play to that location, you have to grant either yourself or one of the other characters that trait. And okay. the traits don't do anything, but it tells you something about your character. That... I, would, I would argue that is doing something. Sure. I mean, <laughs> they don't do anything mechanically. They tell you something right. about your character that you play to through the game. And then there are a handful of places where you could lose a trait and have to figure out what that means for your character. So, for example, in Barley Town at the Barley Manor, you have to portray the trait of wealthy, gallant, or bold. And so one of the characters will, on their character note card, write that trait after the storytelling prompt at that location. And so it just, because you have these building up over time, it fills in the background of the characters as you are playing forward in the story. Mm -hmm. So the prompts kind of push you to fill in the background in a way that you don't have going into the game. Because they, they don't want you to spend a lot of time building your character at the beginning of the game. They want you to get right into play. That's fascinating. Some of my reservations about randomization-less or story-focused games is that, like, if the game itself does not have a built-in turn-taking requirement or that sort of thing, then the people who are most comfortable with improv-style games will kind of, you know, run amok with it. <laughs> or, at the very least, like, occupy most of the screen time. And I think there's something to be said for initiative. I'm going to come out and defend initiative in this podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where like so if you have someone who is not particularly well versed in that or not from an improv background or is kind of shy like in the most bog standard of D, D games that person will always at least have their turn to hit them with their sword you know what i mean right and i know a lot of people sort of prop up storytelling games as being somehow easier to start with than your bog standard D D's, but like 
it requires a different skill set. <laughs> if you don't already have the improv background, it's actually not that much easier. Like finding numbers on your sheet, rolling a die and going, I hit the orc is pretty straightforward <laughs> and not that hard for a lot of people to, to wrap their brains around. And I'm not saying this is impossible either, just that like if that's not in your comfort zone, it can be very difficult. So a game being like, no, everyone must participate in this way. And like, we're going to give you this, you gain this trait, and we're not going to tell you what that means. Just use your imagination. Sets people up for success in a way that I find impressive. Yeah. One of the things that I have kind of come to is that there are some people who I would think would enjoy role-playing, but not the mechanical parts of it. And mm -hmm. this is a game that would, I think, do a good job of introducing those people to the idea of gaming. Mm -hmm. It kind of separates out part of the game that makes it more digestible. I also know a game has thoroughly piqued my interest when someone tells me about it, and I'm like, ah, oh, I desire to harvest it for parts. <laughs> which, is, which, which is about where I'm at right now, where I'm like, nice. I want to buy a copy of this game to steal from it, to open it up at the seams and see what's inside, and then take all the little gears out and then figure out how I can use them myself, which is how one gets better at game design. And in this case, it literally has seams. Yes, I will not. Um, un I will not seam rip the map literally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna not gonna buy the game literally to take the map apart. Do you have more to say on? Fall of Magic? I guess the final thing is, for all of that, there is still a randomization element at points. Okay. Because one of the prompts has you roll a d6, and then it gives you a prompt from the list. So the, the prompt is, um, there is a prompt and then a resolution. Mm -hmm. So, for example, once, again, once we get, we'll go to the Stormguard Mountains. The scouting ahead node at Stormguard says, the danger you fear and you tell the prompt about the danger you fear, mm -hmm. and then you roll a d6 and, and get the result of the danger you find, the danger finds you, or sunbreak. And as you are leading into the prompt, you don't know what the second half of that prompt is going to be. Mm -hmm. So again, it's not a success-failure mechanic, but it does use a, a randomization element to create a little piece of tension in in those kinds of storytelling elements yeah that does sound that does sound really awesome i'm definitely gonna look up where to buy that when we're done um send me a link because i'll also put it in the show notes bxp in the mid episode break room are brought to you by the misdirected mark network ding thank you <laughs> become a bxp patron patrons get to chat with us directly they get special discord roles and sometimes we do exclusive hangouts especially during the off season you can support us for as little as a dollar a month but if you give us 20 bucks, Ray will make you the worst certificate you've ever seen. They're amazing. Bespoke specifically for you. Uh, you can become certified as a Margaret. Uh, all you gotta do is give us 20 bucks for one month, and uh, we will make you an eyesore that you can print off and show to your friends and family. Also, for a $50 installment, we will include an ad or a shout-out for your game or your Kickstarter or something like that uh, in the mid-episode break. Um, terms and conditions apply. If that's something you're interested in, send us 50 bucks and send us a message on Patreon and we will talk to you about it. Also, if you'd rather support BXP without Patreon, you can subscribe on Ko-fi instead, ko-fi.com slash bonus EXP, or just go buy our stuff. We have a bunch of stuff that you can buy. It's all on bxpcast.com slash bxpswag. 
which also includes our drive through RPG affiliate code to buy one of the many, many things that Ray and I have worked on. Our merch page is there, uh, and you can check out uh, Nerdy Cappy and use code BXPI. I fucked that up completely. I'm so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> We're goddamn podcasting professionals. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so good at this. <laughs> also, don't forget BXP is sponsored by Nerdy Cappy. You can get all kinds of rad queer swag. Remember to use code BXPCAST at checkout for 10% off, and it never expires. Also, we have all kinds of BXP stuff on there, including a t-shirt that just says Margaret with an exclamation point, a coffee mug with the BXP logo, but it looks like the LaCroix logo, a cool t-shirt that has the BXP logo as a scatter pattern all over it. We got a bunch of cool stuff on there. 10% off. You can use it over and over again, and we get the money every time. So thanks for supporting us that way and for supporting a small business. Also remember that saying nice things is always free. You can leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us, and that will help us get more listeners. Or you can just do the easier and more common thing and just be like, hey, friends in my gaming group, you would really like this show. You should go listen to it. That's that's the best way to support us. Tell your friends. If you like bonus experience, you will also like The Misdirected Mark. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry break down and get inside games, game mastering, playing games, and game design in an effort to entertain and inform you. Which they do very well. Go check them out. So, we talked a lot about Fall of Magic, and now I have a game I want to buy. But let's talk about some other games that we are also familiar with. Because I know you said you wanted to talk about, like, Jenna Moran's games, like Chubos, like Nobilis. Did you want to go into those at all? Or Sure. Not in as much detail as Fall of Magic, um, okay. because I haven't played them yet. But I- I've been reading Chuba's Magical Wish Granting Engine, which is a Dr. Jenna Moran game. It is a pastoral, I would say anime-inspired uh, weird game. But uh, what I want to look at for the-, the purpose of this is kind of the core mechanic there, which is a non-randomized task resolution. Because your character has different advantages. You can have skills, you can have circumstances to your benefit to perform actions. And those benefits kind of add up to a score. And depending on how high that score is, it tells you how much you can exert narratively on the world. So for example, if your score is a 2, you can accomplish a task that has a tangible impact on the world. If your score is a 5, you can do something productive, something that makes your life better. If you're up at, like, an 8, you have a a bigger impact. However, the things that you need to do to get that score, like I said, you can have your skills, you can have circumstances on your side, but the core piece of it is spending will. And your character has 8 points of will that you can spend towards actions that add to whatever your basic score is. But you can't spend that will freely, and by that I mean it's not totally flexible how you can spend it, because you can spend one, two, four, or eight points of will. Spending four points of will represents a strain on your mind and body, and spending eight points represents a potentially murderous strain on your mind and body. Because if you really want to get those high levels of narrative impact, you need to push yourself beyond your limits. And that's kind of what spending will represents, is when you push, when you exert effort to get the thing done. 
Yeah, it's interesting to me how similar that is to some belonging outside belonging stuff, which is also very much like you have tokens, you have to put yourself in... To gain tokens to have the narrative impact, you must put yourself in... I don't want to say undesirable situations, because you're literally choosing to do that. But, like, you fish for conflict and drama, and also calling it fishing makes it seem like that's a bad mechanic, which is not true. You want to put your character in peril in order to get those things, in order to get the tokens so that you can then have big narrative impact later, which creates, from at least from what I've read, an interesting, like, ebb and flow of drama. And this feels similar. Yeah, and I think, uh, like, I I have only looked at Wanderhome when it comes to Bob games, mm-hmm. but the language I've heard used to describe that is weak moves and strong moves, mm-hmm. where if you use a weak move and, and describe the thing and have the thing happen that's described in your weak move, you gain a token, mm-hmm. which is like your narrative win button piece. And then you can spend that token to make certain narrative changes, make sure that the action that you do has the narrative impact that you want it to. And one of the neat things in in that case is it says that there is no success failure mechanic. Even weak moves and strong moves aren't success failure. You can describe these things however you want, but when you spend a token, you are saying, this is important. This is a, a moment of focus where I have made this kind of change. One of the levers that they then have for for game design is to say, these are the kinds of things that a token can do. Mm -hmm. And if it's outside of that list or beyond the scope of what the token is, it's not something that you can do. And so it points the story to the kinds of success, the kinds of focus that the, the designer wants to bring to the table or wants you to bring to the table. Yeah, definitely. And I also find it very interesting that both of these things are at the very bedrock of it. Resource management games. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> like I, uh, Obviously, the narrative conceit is the thing that separates it from, say, like a resource management worker placement board game, right? Because those are two very different feeling things. But if the resource management in either of those games was designed poorly, they would not be fun or impactful. They would kind of be a little bookkeepy. So I think it's a testament to the quality. Again, we're back to the prompt, living or dying by the prompts. Like yep. the quality of, you know, spending your effort or gaining and spending your tokens to create narrative instances is the thing that makes it shine. Yeah. And and in both cases, both Chubos and and Wander Home, there's a lot in the prompts as well. I think when I was reviewing Wander Home in another place, I said that the, the playbooks in Wander Home were a masterclass in implied world building, mm-hmm. the prompts that they give you, because they're really tightly made lists of ideas that even if you don't take the prompt, tell you something about the place of your character in the world and the world that it is set in. So, like, the prompts are really good at establishing the feel of the game, even if you are not using all of those prompts in any given character. Yeah, Sleepaway also has an interesting thing, because Sleepaway is a horror game, 
I'm sure that some people maybe have the misconception that it's like also cozy, but no, it is a horror game. (laughs) And uh, I like a storytelling horror game so much. Um, And when I saw it available for sale in physical copy at my friendly local gay gaming store, I bought it immediately. And I uh, was pleasantly surprised at how rules dense Sleepaway is. I don't know if Wander Home is similar, but like Sleepaway, people will probably will crucify me for this, but Sleepaway is like all mechanics. They're just not dice ones. They're not crunchy. It's just every single thing is a tool or a rule for telling a horrifying story about a monster that is lurking in this summer camp. Yeah, Wander Home's pretty similar in that, that everything is a tool for telling the story of the journey of your characters and the places that you visit. Mm-hmm. Like there's like four pages of setting mm-hmm. and then everything else is implied by the prompts. Yeah. So there's also some shared spotlighting rules in sleep away. Not everyone is necessarily playing characters in every scene. And so it sort of shifts what would normally be like the GM role to the person who is narrating things for the location. Again, I haven't read Wanderhome, so I'm not sure if it, that's similar, but that's it's, it's very important to the way Sleepaway plays, that like someone is controlling the scene setting. Yeah, Wanderhome has a similar element in that each location is built up of three elements. Um, mm-hmm. And so you combine the three elements with the prompts from the different elements when you, whenever you go to a new place to, to mm-hmm. create your setting. And a person can't take over the whole location, but they can claim any one of the elements. And just like your character has weak moves and strong moves, the place has weak moves and strong moves. Yes. So you can offer tokens by presenting problems to the other players. And it also says that you do the same thing with the denizens, Mm -hmm. which is the game's name for NPCs. And I've kind of cooled on the the term NPC because it's it's really, especially in a game like Wanderhome, not a non-player character. It's just not one of the main characters. It's just not a focus character, yeah. Yeah, it it is a character who is not specifically driven all of the time by one player. Mm-hmm. And those characters are made up of traits, and each trait has a, a weak move and a strong move. So each NPC has weak moves and strong moves that they can present to the active players. So th- there's a lot of being able to hand things around the table. Wanderhome does it in a really interesting way where you can have a storyteller facilitator, or you can have rotating storyteller facilitator, or you can have no storyteller facilitator. And you can change that from like scene to scene, session to session, which is impressive in the way that it flows very easily. I ran it for a convention at one point and started as like solely the facilitator. And, and as the game went on and, and the players who had none of them had, had seen a, a game of Wander Home play out before, I think some of them hadn't even read more than just the uh, just taking a look at their playbooks. Mm-hmm. Getting them to jump in and take some of the NPCs, again, not NPCs, but the denizens of the setting, and portraying them in a, a really kind of interesting or uh, adversarial way was really fun. 
one of the players took the role of an obstreperous moth, who was a problem. In, in Wander Home, the, the players are all animals who live in this wonderful domain where bugs are giant and act in a way kind of like animals do in our world. Okay. And the postal service is delivered by moths. So one of the playbooks is the moth tender, who is responsible for like delivering packages and, and communicating across the region. And also managing the moths. And so this moth tower had gone untended, and the moth tender was trying to like get to the packages, make sure that, that everything was okay, and one of the moths was uh, not having it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was just a, a great scene. Because one of the other players was like, oh, I want to be this moth. And <laughs> yeah, it was, it was delightful. Yeah, uh, so Sleepaway gives you the direction that whenever it feels right, pick up one of the setting elements and have it support the game. While holding it, you control that aspect of the world. Sometimes that setting element will be literal, sometimes it won't. For example, you might be holding the lake during a scene when no one's near the lake. That's okay. Setting elements are also metaphors for other feelings and moments within the game. It's possible to drown without, the la without any lake nearby, or without even any water, both in life and in Sleepaway. So, like, I like the idea of each of the setting bits, which are framing elements both literally and figuratively being things that are like cards you put on the table and you literally pick up when you're like i want to engage with the feelings of the lake and the, here's the description of the lake the lake is where secrets go to die it when it is present in the story it seems to cover up and distort truth by swallowing it under the waves although the lake is not an agent of the lindworm it can often work in the lindworm's favor hiding its influence and putting others in danger the lake is a hungry place. It desires to conceal, to feed on secrets, to smother, to kill, to grow beyond its banks, to seduce, to lure, and to keep truth hidden beneath its waves. Anyone can start with the lake except for the lifeguard. The lifeguard never ends up with the lake unless it makes perfect sense. And then it gives you some tips for when to invoke it, such as create good reasons for someone to either literally or metaphorically enter the lake, be filled with the alien beyond what is expected, ask compelling questions, and build on the answers others give prompts you to pick up that whenever a scene is set by or in the lake. Literally, if you're going to that, that part of the camp, right? The lake has wisdom, or false wisdom, it must offer the camp. The air is murky, misty, and it feels right. You hand it away when your character needs to keep a secret, or the lake feels too dark or exhausting to bear. And then it has a bunch of aesthetic elements from literal things like misty, or muddy, or algae-filled, to metaphorical things like vast, forbidden, deceiving, reflective, hungry... <laughs> Reminder that this is a horror game. <laughs> yeah, Wanderhome is very similar in the way it gives you those prompts, where mm -hmm. you do take on an aspect of the location. Mm -hmm. And like Sleepaway, it has traits for those places to be. So, for example, one of the traits for a location could be wilderness, and it, it gives you, this place can always describe something massive, sublime, or uncaring. Mm -hmm. Show the changes caused by living with nature and say, get out of the way, and everyone who does get a token. Describe what enormous thundering force nearly strikes them down. So again, it's similar. It gives you pieces that you can bring to the game with each of the elements. Yeah, that's... these games are well done. <laughs> they, they really are. Um, the other part of Chubos that I think is, is worth kind of zooming in on, again, comes down to prompts. Chubos uses actions. Actions in Chubos are kind of like moves in a, a PBTA game in that they create a specific dramatic focus for the character. But because there's no role, 
they are the narrative beats of the game that earn new experience points towards completing your quests, which are kind of like your character objectives. And there's like 15 actions or something, and that's a lot to keep track of, so the game divides them into genres. And when you're playing a session, you declare what genre you're playing, and then have a small list of like two to five actions that are relevant in play. And then you only bring in any of the other actions if anybody's like, I think this other action would be perfect instead, even though like it's not in focus. So like, the default mode of play is pastoral, and the actions are a shared action, which says where you find someone who's doing something simple and honest, like chores, steadying, fishing, or whatever, and connect with them as they work. A shared reaction, where you talk things through with someone, sort out your head and or theirs about stuff that's been going on. And the final action, slice of life, where you travel, admire the scenery, have a meandering conversation about nothing in particular, in general experience stuff, and emote your reactions to it. So those are the three actions that make up the pastoral genre in Chubos. And so that's how it gives your kind of narrative spotlight focus. The added layer to it, and this gets back to the turn-taking aspect, is in each scene, you can only earn experience for an action once. And so the idea is that you'll be handing off who is earning experience by taking action separately. You can also earn experience by emoting a response to someone else's actions. And then if you want to look at a different genre, for example, the genre called The Road of Trials uses the actions Suffer Adversity, Suffer Corruption, Suffer Trauma, and Never Say Die. So it creates a very different feel for the game, even inside of the same setting, by changing the narrative beats that are the focus of what's going on. Cool. I also realized we didn't talk about Firebrands, despite we didn't talk about Firebrands. Should we talk about Firebrands for a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about Firebrands for a little Uh, bit. I know you've reviewed a Firebrands game on the show. This is a game type that I, I have heard a lot about have just started to delve into myself, and I'm all of a sudden very excited to use it for a design framework for a a game idea that I kind of had had on the back burner for almost exactly two years when I went and checked my notes about it. What is a Firebrands game? Would you like to, can you you give us that definition? So Firebrands, if I recall correctly, because I haven't actually had any exposure to the original, just other people's hacks of it, is it's a mecha game, right? That's just mini games. Uh, Mobile Frame Zero is a mecha game. game. Okay. Firebrands, Mobile Frame Zero Firebrands is the Vincent McGay Baker game that is in the same world as the Mobile Frame Zero games. Okay. And is a is a role playing game. It is the framework that all of the other Firebrands games are are using. The core conceit of the game framework is that on a turn, you choose a game, and then Mm -hmm. there are a series of mini-games that the game is made up of that give you a framework and a set of questions to play through a scene or a narrative engagement. So uh, the setting, like you said, is, is a... It's a kind of mecha medieval setting where where you've got, like, nobility and also corporations and mecha. So... 
you have these kind of very spotlighted mecha pilots who can be very high drama, which is a delightful setting. But then each player in their turn picks one of the mini games, and so those mini games are um, an animated disagreement, a chase, a conversation over food, a dance, a free for all, meeting sword to sword, a tactical skirmish, or stealing time together. Okay. And if we zoom in on any one of those, they create a framework that gives you narrative prompts to create a particular kind of scene. So okay. if we look at meeting sword to sword, it says only you and your chosen partner play. Decide how the two of you came to be standing alone sword to sword. What do you notice about each other? What have you heard? During the duel, anyone can ask questions for details and location and circumstances. Then, as you conduct the duel, one of you asks a leading question, and leading questions are things like, I have a sword pointed at your clavicle, do you submit or do you twist away and rejoin the fight? Or, we lock swords and your mouth is near my ear, what do you say? And these kind of give dramatic beats of the, the scene of the duel, and at any time after the third leading question, either member of the duel can choose to ask one of the closing questions instead. And the closing questions are things like, you knock my sword rattling out of my hand. Do you allow me to recover it, or must I submit? Or, I seize momentum and initiative and drive you backwards. If you stand, throw. And, and Firebrands does actually have a randomization system in some points. You, you, you throw coins. And so mm -hmm. this is one of those dramatic moments where you do throw coins instead of <laughs> it being purely narrative. And mm -hmm. then there are two, two different outcomes, whether it's a heads or a tails. So on a heads, you hold me back. On a tails, I cut you through, killing you. And then the question is, do you stand or do you allow, allow yourself to be driven? So you can choose if you want to take that chance on the throw or not. So it creates the scene by giving you leading questions that kind of play out the scene, and then closing questions that could end the duel right then and there. Not all of them do, but many of them have the opportunity to end the scene. And some of them are, are more open. For example, in a free-for-all, you go around the table, each of them taking a question off the list as you play back and forth. And that's kind of the, the way it works, is each player takes a turn picking a game, and then playing through that game with whatever other players the game says to bring to it. So that's kind of the framework of Firebrands. Yeah, that's that's the same pretty much in Dragonhearts, which is the one that we reviewed, which is a, a uh, also a Firebrands hack. Yeah, uh, from those topics that you brought up, like those prompts. I, I don't know. Maybe I really should read the whole thing, but I was like not as struck by them as I was by some of the other ones. <laughs> like some of them seemed a little too. So one of the th let me try to put this whole thought together. So like one of the cool things about playing a role playing game, period, whether you are playing a tra traditional traditional game like I don't know Pathfinder two or D anD D, or whether you're playing Fall of Magic, the thing that everyone is there for whether they are aware of it or not, I think, is to be surprised. And that's why people really like dice rolls, right? Like, the joy of playing a role-playing game is being surprised by someone else's choices, good or bad. <laughs> like, 
you know, the Doncast chooses to jump out the window when there's a perfectly good exit right there, landing on the legionnaires who are surrounding the building, right? Then you're like, okay, well, I guess we're rolling with this now, right? Like, that's <laughs> that sort of constant forward momentum of, like, the yes and surprise, and then, like, in that instance, does that roll go wrong, or does that roll go super well? And both of those possible outcomes are then surprising for the rest of the game. And you want to be surprised and delighted by the thing that is happening next, even if it's scary or bad. And games with strong prompts create the surprise because you don't know how someone's going to answer that question, right? And the more firm but open-ended a prompt is, the better the surprise. Is that a, Does that sound like a reasonable statement? <laughs> yes, it does. And I think the... The example that I gave of the duel has mm -hmm. very narrow prompts because it is very strictly the structure of a duel. Mm -hmm. Some of the other ones, like an animated disagreement, have much more open-ended questions. But I think, again, that comes down to how good are the prompts for creating the drama. Mm -hmm. But I think what emerges from a, a a game like the duel is not necessarily the outcome. But the emergent story when these characters are running into each other. So each individual beat of the duel is not the interesting outcome piece. It is the build up of those things that leads to the emergent narrative position by the end right. of the scene. Yeah, that makes sense. In like a conversation over food, are there things that can basically be read like as a yes or no question? So I'm looking at Dragonhearts, and one of the thing is, like, I obviously want to be praised about blank, will you? Uh, which, is, which is leading, but it's also a yes or no question. And I feel like someone could just be like, yes, I do. Um, yes, there are. Um, okay. Uh, about a yes or no question. So, like, one of them is, I hope you don't bring up blank. Do you? I need you to come clean about blank. Do you? I accidentally spill the secret that blank... I cover it gracefully, but do you pick up on it anyway? And so there are a lot of them that are uh, are yes and no. And I think the idea is that you you are supposed to go from there and role play for a little bit until you come to the next question. So the implied piece to me is that part of the direction is that after asking the question you engage in an actual improvised conversation that is prompted by the question. So you have the thing come up, and then you roleplay from there for a little bit. Yeah. And I think the roleplay from there for a little bit is the piece where, in a Firebrands game, I think you do already need to have some improvisational skill. I think Fall of Magic does a better job of giving you a framework that you can play without improvisational skill than firebrands but it is a very different experience in the way that it does it yeah but i think if you if you are leaning back from the prompts and do just go with the simple yes i do and don't do the role playing from that point it, it loses some of of what it's trying to get at yeah my my criticism of those things being framed as yes or no questions is that i think it's easy to 
drop it too hard. Like, it's easy to just go yes and then not continue. If you aren't already in the zone, warmed up, feeling the mood, like, if you start with a conversation over food instead of being primed on something else, uh, and you don't know what to say or you feel awkward about answering the question, because let's be real, starting off improv... Like, when you do actual improv, there's a whole lot of time dedicated to warming up and getting ready to improvise with each other. Like, you gotta you gotta align your brains. And if you are not primed for that storytelling, it can be really awkward. And it sounds like Fall of Magic does a pretty good job of priming you for that. And this assumes a little bit more improv system mastery <laughs> than the other. <laughs> yep, I think that's fair. There is also a, an aspect, at least in Mobile Frame Zero Firebrands, of uh, the solitaire game, where in creating your character, you have a list of questions that you go through to think about, and then share that with the table to develop your own character. So you don't go in with nothing already set up. There are also recommendations about the order to play games in, because different games give you a, a different feel. So I, I don't know, I, I don't know if I haven't read all of Firebrands yet, so I'm not sure if they do it here, but I know some Firebrands games actually give you a structure. They tell you which game to play first. They give you a suggested arc for games, because then the drama that builds up in one game pays out in the next game. So instead of having it as a standalone scene, it is part of an arc of a story that that builds from a, a certain point. Yeah. It's something I definitely want to uh, get to the table and see it play out because I may be making a, a Firebrands hack um, yeah, in the not-too-distant future. I certainly would be willing to give it a go. Uh, I, definitely, I definitely want to get Firebrands and read it. comes highly recommended. And I think that there's a lot of value in looking at a social system in maybe more trend games and stripping away some of the randomization from it, because I feel like that's one of the places where there doesn't need to be. But there's a whole deep dive I did with D about this. There is. It's good. <laughs> Which you should go listen to, and I think it's public, and if it's not, well, give us a dollar. Uh, yeah, I, I, like, I, I think there's a really fruitful space to stop making charisma rolls and start making asking questions of each other, because you can put asking questions of each other into literally every game because it requires nothing other than your ability to improvise a little bit. Yep. Yep. Well, and PBTA does that pretty well also. Mm -hmm. um, so if you are looking for an asking questions framework, many PBTA games have that. And one of the cool things you can do with it is give individual characters unique questions. So you mm -hmm. may have a pool of shared questions that anyone can ask. But then some characters get like extras, like you can always answer this extra question. I don't remember the exact wording, but I know there's one for the delinquent in masks, where if you're trying to figure someone out, you can can do something like figure out what would make them break the rules or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think another one for the delinquent that that if they're assessing the situation, they can always know what's the most valuable thing here. Or no, that's not that's not that that's um. That is from Root, and that is the rogue who can always figure out what the most valuable thing to steal here is uh, on their question list. So you can, you can again, you're, you're tuning the experience of the playbook based on the extra question that they get, 
because once you put that knowledge in the hands of players, they are more likely to act on it than if they never asked that question in the first place. So when you have the thief, who always knows what is the most valuable thing to steal, if they're looking around at all, that immediately suggests that they should steal it. Yeah, exactly. And PBTA bleeding into other games has been a thing that has progressively continued to happen, which is great, because question askers are fantastic tech that you should steal in every game. I, a friend of mine, I'm going to tell a little story. So I had a, I had a friend who was playing through, I think it was an old school D&D dungeon, one of the many ones that had been redone for 5th edition, maybe officially, because I know there's like a couple of those. I see them at my game store all the time with their big colorful covers and the big old classic 70s font on the spine. And I, it's, I'm like a little magpie and I'm like, I kind of want it. And then I pick it up and I'm like, I don't actually want this. It's just colorful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Where there's a gem of mind reading. And of course, because this is based on the original version, it's more or less just like, now you can just read everybody's mind and it makes the rest of the dungeon trivial because you can just read everyone's mind. And of course, you know. There's a little bit of, you know, classic D&D adventures have a lot of player versus environment elements where the GM is also somewhat the environment adversarially acting against them. And that inspires players to be really creative with the tools in their toolbox. And I think I've had I've played in some games where like that experience was very fun, but that was because everyone, including the GM, bought into the idea of like framing this dungeon as a PvE type deal. Not as in the GM is trying to kill our characters for because we're too smart to solve the problem, but that like we are playing a PvE game. And when you frame it that way, it's much more enjoyable. Pro tip. <laughs> but like their game, they were having basically this gem made the whole dungeon trivial because you could just like cleverly reveal the thoughts of the monsters or whatnot. And so the GM didn't really know what to do with it and was just going to ban it from the adventure. But it's a key item for something later in this dungeon. And I was like, well, here's a really easy house rule. Allow anyone to make like an insight check or an intelligence check to use the gem and then make up a list of like 30 questions that you can ask, allowing a player to ask any number based on that check or whatever. Right. But make sure that it is more questions than one person can possibly ask with one role so that you are never giving away everything, but you might give away some very important things that your GM can then control what information is being handed out. And like, his mind was blown by the idea that you could just be like, no, just restrict mind reading to a list of questions that someone can ask and then throw in a randomization element that prevents them from asking like just the most important one all the time, uh, (laughs) or from asking all of them all the time and then revealing everything, thus getting us right back to the problem that it trivializes the dungeon. And I was like, you know, you can do that all the time, right? Like you can just, it's actually pretty easy to do that. And you can just do it all. You can just change things like that if you want to. Are you saying <laughs> that you could change it if they want to? I, I sure am saying that you can change it if you want to. <laughs> Where have I heard that before? I, um, critically acclaimed massively multiplayer <laughs> Final <laughs> Fantasy fourteen. <laughs> I hear you can play that for free up to level 60, 60. including the Heaven Sword expansion. <laughs> this is extra. You, it, that joke's not that funny to the rest of our audience who makes it all the time, but I just introduced Chaz to that meme very recently, so it was fresh in our minds. 
<laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Which is why we're both laughing like this right now. <sighs> anyway, do you have anything else you'd like to discuss or put a little bow on before we wrap up? I don't think so. Okay. To put a bow on this, what sort of things do you, as a person who does games, think are worth harvesting from these types of games or learning from that sort of thing? Or like, what sort of, I don't know, trying to put a conclusion on this. Like, what would you what would you steal from, from these games? What inspires you about them? That sort of thing. Sure. So there's kind of a, an easy answer with hard implementation mm-hmm. or a higher level answer that is probably easier to implement, but requires some serious thought. One of the things that all of these games do is uh, lean into experience-based design. Mm -hmm. As a designer, what you hand the player is the only tool that you have to determine what kind of experience they have playing the game. We all have different things happen at the table. Our experience of gaming is ultimately different. Mm -hmm. And many games just give you a toolkit and say, run wild. And so you you can end up with very different table experiences with the same game. I think that is less true of a game that has a very guided set of prompts, because prompts are going to create a particular experience of the game, especially depending on how they are presented. So even in a game that is not randomizationless, you can think in your design how do I want this to feel at the table? And write your questions, write your moves, write your character types with that in mind. Think about the experience that what you put in a player's hand is going to create when they bring it to the table. The easy answer, kind of flippant one that is hard to do, is make really good prompts. But I think that thinking about experience-based design is is part of how you, you get to that very challenging make good prompts position yeah that's much like writing good moves in pbta that is a matter of looking at existing material and refining it or like trying to copy it as best as you can and you're gonna fuck it up a bunch of times (laughs) and that's okay yeah it is okay and like start small gotta practice this is literally how you get better at things i regret to inform everyone (laughs) that the best way to get better at things is to do them over and over again Sorry, there's there's not a faster way to do it. There is a little bit more to it. It's not just to do it over and over again. It's to do it over and over again experimentally. Yes. Yes. Especially in a creative task space. Because if you just do the, like, the one thing that you're really good at over and over again, it's not going to expand your capabilities. So experiment, do different stuff, do stuff that you expect to be bad because it is going to be exercising design muscles that, that you don't realize that you're using. Yeah. Don't worry about finishing stuff. Just, just yeah. do stuff, come up with ideas. If you use one in 30 of those ideas at the end of the day, you have still had 30 in, in iterations of experimenting and, and improving. Yeah. Like one of the best things you can do for yourself period, not just not just as a game designer, just period, is do things that are too hard. <laughs> Jump into the deep end. Do it. Push yourself. Push yourself real hard. Like, it's safe to always do things you're good at. 
and you will grow a lot by fucking up. <laughs> Try something, go all in on it, and then you'll discover pretty quickly whether or not you like it or not, or, or if it's a skill you want to continue refining. I was going to say good at it, but like being good at something is a big combination of like willingness to practice and you know personal aptitude and accessibility. I discovered very recently that a lot of things that I thought I was bad at, I just needed accessibility requirements for. So, like, you know, figure out how your brain works and do it. Game design, art, crafting, music. Just do it. Just do it. We went from talking about diceless games to, like, solid life advice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can find the show at bxpcast.com, part of the Misdirected Mark Network. Ding. Uh, you can send us an email to bonusexpcast at gmail.com. Tell us about your favorite games without randomization. And if you're a person who has written one, send us a link and we'll buy it. And then maybe even review it and talk about it on the show later. Uh, same with Twitter. You can follow us there. We are at bonusexpcast. You can send us a link to your itch.io page there or recommend to friends. We will purchase them. Do not send it to us for free. We will buy them. We will give you money. Let us give you money. If you want to join us for more discussions, our Discord is public. We have a special room for patrons, but anyone can come and hang out, even if you don't listen to the show. We won't kick you out if you aren't a regular listener. We have no way to prove that. That is tinyurl.com slash bxpdiscord, and if you pop that link into your browser, it'll take you right there. Drop in, say hi, hang out. We'd love to have you. And if you like it that much, then you can give us some, some money and, and, and get to see the secret patron room. Chaz, where can they find you if they want to follow you on the internet? They can follow me on Twitter as at StoryToldChaz. That's probably the best place to go find me. I will tweet about any projects that I am doing uh, and releasing. I have many things in the works uh, and don't know when any of them will come to see the light of day. But I will tweet about them when they do. You can also find me on the BXP Discord, because I'm there. So if you have something you really want to ask just me, I do give you permission to at me. Do so respectfully, responsibly. I know many people don't like being added at, but I can't follow a conversation on a, on more than like one Discord, so I need people that like draw my attention if you want to talk to me. So you can do that. If they want to listen to you on other things, what other shows can they find you on? Oh boy, okay. You can <laughs> find me on The Story Told, uh, which also includes the Fall of Jara actual play, which I have previously mentioned. I am no longer a host on that show, but I am on more than 100 episodes, so that, by volume, that would be the, the most of me that you can listen to. You can listen to me on the systematic understanding of everything, but since you're a BXP listener, I suspect you already have. You can listen to me on many episodes of Opcast, the Trinity Continuum podcast, and you can find me in the ongoing but slow-releasing Pain in the Dice podcast, uh, where Terry and I release episodes periodically with our musings on gaming. Um, that is also the feed where my next Exalted Actual Play will be releasing. No promises on timing yet, as our recording schedule got very disrupted. Um, I was hoping to already have that out, and I'm just going to be recording the first session next week, so... I'm like four months behind where I wanted to be on that. But that will be a shorter arc than the Fall of Giara. So if 56 episodes of Exalted is, is too much for you to jump into, our new arc will be following our solar Exalted characters. 
as they travel through the homeland of one of the player characters, delving into her backstory and resolving uh, a number of plot threads that she created when building the character. So that will be fun. My thought for reformatting the, the way that I'm doing actual play games is to do shorter, more self-contained arcs so that it is easier to onboard. So this, this solar game will be the fir- my first attempt at that, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, so if you want to follow me, I am at Sun on Twitter. Uh, I've stopped posting there as much. Still do sometimes, like I respond to people and retweet stuff and like things and continue to follow artists and stuff like that on there. But uh, I'm more active on Tumblr, where I can like write out whole posts with like thoughts and things and repeatedly post pictures that I've drawn of a ship that only I'm into. You know, that's just just using Tumblr for its intended purpose. I am Dice Dash Wizard there. Uh, follow me there if you. I, I the the tabletop scene there is pretty cool, so I'm a, I'm a fan of it. You obviously can listen to me on Systematic Understanding of Everything alongside Chaz and Terry, and you know y'all know y'all know where to listen to me. I guess I don't need to go through all of that. So we're done. Okay, and that my workday is about over. So we gotta go. It's time to get out. I gotta do everybody get chores. out. That's that how yep. it works. And yeah, that's how it works. Get out of here. <laughs> Don't forget to Yeah, go, get out. Uh change it if you want and to. Die mad about it? Does that, that go here? Oh. No, it doesn't. It's not selling in the beginning. You could if you want to add an extra die mad about it, feel free. Are you saying that I can change it if I want to? I, I am saying that you can change it if you want <laughs> that to. That seems like a good place to end that. <laughs> Do I have to do this? Oh, fine. Bonus Experience is written and produced by Monica and Ray. Uh, and edited by Margaret. This episode features special guest Chaz. Our logo and art is by Nino Studios. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram. Our theme song is Reuse Noise with the Light by CDK and is used under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. BXP is part of the Misdirected Mark Network. What? What is all this? I'm not reading this. Fuck it. Bye.